She was a symbol of continuity in the United Kingdom for seven decades. But after Queen Elizabeth II's death, what's the future of the monarchy and how will she be remembered? I'm Imran Khan and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Let's bring in our guests. Joyce Sigurd is a writer, editor and author of Jamaicans in Britain, a legacy of leadership. She joins us from London. Ian Lloyd is a royal writer and former royal photographer. He joins us from Oxford. And Zayed Belbaji is the managing partner of Hardcastle Advisory, a London-based political consultancy. Ian is also a political commentator and advisor. He also joins us from London. Um, long live the Queen, or rather, long live the King, and the Queen is dead. All of these things we keep hearing, we keep hearing of the, the legacy of this woman. I want to bring in Ian Lloyd here in Oxford. Uh, Ian, you spent a lot of time with the Queen. You took a number of pictures of her. You went on key visits with her. We keep hearing this idea that she was the epitome of duty, that she knew exactly what she was doing. Is that right? Yes, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, she was uh, trained by her parents because... Her father came to the throne unexpectedly when his brother abdicated in 1936. So he was landed with the job of king without any experience. And he was determined that the same thing wouldn't happen to his daughter. So although she was only 25 when she became uh, queen, um, she was trained um, by the king. So she saw uh, documents uh, from the time of the Second World War and had her own box of uh, government papers from the Foreign Office so that she could uh, get used to being the uh, the Queen. And I think um, uh, when she started, I, I interviewed um, later on a, a private secretary of the Queen's, and he said in the early days she was always saying, what would my father have done? So she was very keen to continue that legacy, and she was a very disciplined person as well who was very good at the uh, executive side of the job of, the reading the documents and um, um, uh, you know assiduously kind of um, training herself, I suppose, on the job it, from when she became queen in 1952. Well, Ian, uh, just the idea of her that that she knew what she was doing, that that she had this sense of duty. But for over seven decades, the world completely changed, and she was there uh, guiding Britain almost uh, through many of those changes. Um, was she? aware of the kinds of seismic shifts that were going on? Or was she kind of insulated from all of that? I think she's very aware of it. I mean, as she took her role as, as mother of the country, if you like, very seriously. Um, she uh, read a certain amount of the correspondence that was sent to her by ordinary men and women. And she would say that um, the expression is, the book stops here. She knew that... Um, that people quite often had failed to get something, whether it's an operation or something, and they didn't know who to turn to. So they wrote to the Queen, and she was um, very experienced of, uh, in, um, you know, sort of uh, tried to find out what people wanted. The other thing that she did was every day she read um, all the newspapers, so she was aware of what was happening, the mood in the in the country. The only time, of course, she got it wrong was during the week. Uh, Diana died, um, and I don't think she could quite get used to that uh, that sudden change that came ab about when the Princess of Wales was killed in 1997. Let's bring in Joy here. Joy, uh, 
What we're hearing from Ian seems to be what a lot of people are saying, that she did have this sense of duty, that she was this woman that presided over, the, like, seven decades in these seismic shifts and she was aware of them. But I don't know if that's really the case. I mean, the royal household in particular uh, is incredibly white. It didn't really... Uh, it, in fact, it didn't employ a person of British colour until very, very recently. It, it seemed to be out of touch with what was going on in her own country. What do you think? Um, well, I, I would actually slightly disagree with that. I do believe that Queen Elizabeth II was very much in touch with, um, or, or she had some insight into all of her subjects. She was always, there, there, were all, there have always been people of colour in the royal household for hundreds of years in one capacity or other. Um, we know very well about Queen Victoria. We know um, um, George, George, um, George the Third. He had a, a black wife, or, or partially black, from a black descendant, black African descent. And um, so, uh, and and she also raised her children in the same way. And um, I, I, I do know that they always had, uh, so they were always in touch, certainly with members from the black community, whether they be from England or, or throughout the Commonwealth. Well, let's bring in uh, Zaid Balbaji here. Uh, Joy makes an interesting point. There have been people from various walks of life uh, in the royal household. I mean, the example of Queen Victoria was mentioned there, but she was the Empress of India. She'd brought over a Indian uh, person to basically help her understand the country. She was ruling. This is a legacy of colonialism. It wasn't multicultural Britain that we're talking about, right? When it came to Queen Elizabeth II. Um, I, again, would politely um, disagree in some respects. I'll explain why. Um, it's, it's the seven decades of, of rule that you mentioned, again, an extraordinary um, uh, period in, in world history. The Queen oversaw imperialism, fascism, communism, and took us through to the tech age. And I think as a monarch who started her reign, you know, as uh, the sovereign of, of 70 countries to, to, to today, she managed that process and Britain's um, shifting role in the world um, with aplomb. And I think um, the royal family has done well to reconfigure itself towards um, people of different colour and different um, communities. And that's definitely something that King Charles is about. He's, um, he's stated that over and over. Ian Lloyd, it's an extraordinary legacy, isn't it? Especially when you th consider, you know, the seven decades that she has been in this job. But you've also got to consider, we also have to consider in Britain the impact of, of this, the judiciary, the legal system, um, all on Her Majesty's service. All She's the ceremonial head. That suddenly changes to His Majesty. Does that make a difference at all, do you think? Um, well, it's going to take some getting used to. I mean, you know, let's see, lawyers are Queen's counsellors and now they're King's counsellors. And uh, uh, one thing we'll notice straight away or soon will be the change in the King's uh, image on uh, banknotes and, and coins. We're, um, it's You'd have to be about 80 years old now to remember a time when we sang God Save the King and uh, the king's head was on the stamps and the um, the coins, so um, it's going to take some getting used to. Um, and 
uh, all during my life and, and people much older than me, uh, everything has been in the presence of the Queen and quite often the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. So it's going to take a, an awful lot of uh, adjustment, I think. But uh, um, I mean, it happened when the Queen became Queen. So it, uh, equally, it's going to happen um, again, but we're just not used to it. Um, 70 years is a, an amazing amount of time, isn't it? I mean, Joe, uh, when Queen Elizabeth II came into uh, into the royal, into the head of the royal family and became queen, we lived in a very different world. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't this kind of 24-hour scrutiny that was on the royal family. We now have seen the effect of that 24-hour scrutiny. We've seen everything blow up, uh, any, any kind of controversy blow up into something like huge, where people start talking about it on talk shows. The royal family is so much more public now than it ever was. Do you think King Charles is capable of dealing with that? Um, I, I do, actually. And I think for the last couple of decades, he's been really very well prepared. And he's shown a great interest in, in, in particularly in London, it's very evident, the diversity um, the diversity of the country. He has um, involved himself in schemes that have actually uplifted many people from, um, um, from, other, from ethnic minorities and, uh, and given them opportunities, whether it's through the Prince's Trust or any other scheme that he has done. And he's really come to the forefront. And, and I have to say, I'm quite looking forward to seeing what other changes he will make, he will make um, to the establishment. Uh, Saad Balbaji, uh, do you think that, do you agree with that? It seems a quite an optimistic assessment. It is optimistic, though we're missing one other thing here, which is the role that the monarchy has um, externally. And I think we're seeing that in the, in the tributes, etc. You saw the tribute from Vladimir Putin, I'm sure. Um, really remarkable. The same, you know, the UK has a very um, difficult relationship with Europe. The tributes from the EU and President Macron were were remarkable in, in, in the same regard. And I think um, the monarchy has its role in Britain retaining its influence on the world stage. And the Queen, you know, certain relationships and certain um, a certain personal rapport will be lost with the passing of the Queen. However, King Charles is um, representing an institution and he will be able to benefit from some of that institutional memory on the, on the diplomatic stage, definitely. Ian... King Charles II, when he was Prince uh, Charles III, in fact, uh, but when he was uh, Prince Charles, he was—he actually took an active look at what the royal family meant, and down to the minutiae of like how many members of the royal household should there be. He was very—he was taking a look at what the monarchy meant in the 21st century. Now he has a chance to actually change uh, the monarchy. Will he? Will he change it? Will he take that chance? I think, in certain ways, definitely. I mean. Um... An obvious one is is the um, uh, the number of people who are members of the royal family. Um, if you ask people in the street what they don't like about the monarchy, quite often it's it's what they call the hangers-on, the distant relatives, the cousins, and so on. Um, and I think he will streamline the monarchy, so we'll get rid of um, um, Prince Andrew. Well, he's already gone, but I mean. Um, it'll be very the focus will be very much on the immediate line of succession with certain exceptions obviously the princess royal does a fantastic job and and would be 
um, uh, very much part of the firm, and I think with Edward and Sophie as well. But um, apart from that, the very uh, the great number of royals will be uh, reduced, and uh, I think they'll, he'll think about certain things like the uh, the palaces. I mean, we're still not too early to say what will happen, but it uh, there was rumours that he might make Windsor Castle his um, seat of government, if you like, and uh, and the Buckingham Palace will be permanently open to the public. But it could be the other way around. We don't know yet. But I think there will be quite a lot of changes. I think he's more open to changes probably than the Queen was because the Queen was a great traditionalist and she um, was of the opinion, you know, if it's not, if it's not broken, um, sorry, I've just forgotten the phrase now, but, um, you know, she, she, she didn't really want to, uh, to change that much. So um, I think, uh, yes, it, it could be an interesting time for the monarchy, certainly in terms of adapting to the future. Joy, is adapting enough or does it need a radical change? Um, I think the adaptation um, began quite some time ago, actually. It's been very slow, but it's been evolving um, over the year over the years. Um, and um, and we've seen that. I mean, they had no option when um, Princess Diana died than, than to make some radical changes. And they made a complete turnaround. And now, I mean, irrespective of what's happened, um, um, King Charles, has two black um, <laughs> grandchildren. I mean, you know, th this has been happening very slowly, but very certainly, and I, I do feel that it's turning, it's going in the in the right direction. I mean, we can't expect changes overnight, um, you know, but it is going in the right direction. Especially these times are very difficult because a number of the former colonies they no longer want to be part of. Um, they no longer want um, the British monarchy to be at their head, but at the same time, they want to maintain a, a very good relationship with them. And it's not to forget that these people from all these countries, they all loved Queen Elizabeth. Well, let's talk about the Commonwealth. It's actually one of the, uh, the, the things that I certainly will always associate with Queen Elizabeth II. She seemed to be very much bought into the idea of the Commonwealth. She was, the, she was certainly somebody that uh, kept it, kept the idea going for a very long time, Zaid Belbaji. Um, the Commonwealth is a ridiculous name, though, because it's a legacy of colonialism. It's a legacy of uh, Britain take it, taking and stealing a lot of countries' wealth and then calling it the Commonwealth. But beyond that, is the Commonwealth now still something that King Charles will take on because it seemed to me to me very much his mother's project uh, in some respects yes because she was the monarch that oversaw the shrinking of of, of uh, british territories as i said when she became queen she was the queen of 70 plus countries in terms of it being associated with her i mean um it is it remains the second largest international organization in the world it has the ability to do a lot more we saw Prince Charles in recent years as the transition was taking place take a more active role. But I also think there's scope for Britain's um, role in the world to be increased somewhat. I mean, in recent memory, the Queen was on postage stamps in Bahrain, Qatar, Kuwait and what is now the UAE. And I think that the Commonwealth has missed a step in some respects in making sure that all of the um, areas in which Britain had some influence, um, that it's not extended further. Um, the monarchy is also able to kind of retain Britain's relationship and expand upon them elsewhere. The Queen oversaw the, the period of the special relationship with the United States. And, for example, not going too far, um, 
in recent years, the relationship with Morocco has undergone a, a renaissance. Morocco and the United Kingdom have had a relationship for 800 years. And the depth of that is because of this interdynastic um, relationship. So I think the monarchy can do a lot more to build Br Britain's place in the world upon the, the progress that they've already had in, in recent decades. I mean, Ian Lloyd, Britain is off to a head start because of its uh, unique position within uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, you went to several of those countries with the Queen herself. You took uh, pictures with her. Uh, you must have witnessed the warm welcome and the, the politics of all of this. But now we are witnessing countries wanting to get rid of the monarchy as their head of state. But like Joyce said, still wanting to maintain a warm relationship. Is there an opportunity here for King Charles to be able to do that? Yes, although obviously he, um, to a certain extent, he's limited because of his age. I mean, I suppose that he, the Queen was 25 and um, she put in the legwork in the early uh, years of her reign. I mean, the first tour of Australia, New Zealand and Jamaica and some Pacific Islands was almost six months. So um, because it had to be by sea in those days. Um, Prince Charles won't be able to have that sort of uh, intense um, sort of uh, amount of time in these in the countries. So I suppose he uh, um, a lot of it will devolve onto William and, and Catherine, I suppose. But um, I can imagine that um, a lot of the countries will use this opportunity now to um, replace the uh, the Queen or the King now as, as head of state, because uh, um, having been to Australia, I mean, it is very odd to be at the other end of the world and have uh, the Queen's head on the uh, the notes and the stamps again, you know. So um, it's, uh, I think that's an, that's uh, almost uh, going to happen very, I imagine, fairly soon. Um, but at the same time, he and William, I think, will use the Commonwealth to for their um, in own initiatives, particularly things like the environment and that. So rather than just being a political organisation, I think it will be a useful body of people. That, Sorry, um, Ian, we are running out of time, uh, and I do, I do want to yeah. very quickly come to Joy as well. Joy, we're talking about the Commonwealth now and the fact that it could be retold. You actually mentioned uh, the idea that, you know, a lot of countries may well replace the Queen, uh, the King rather now, as I'm going to make that mistake for a while. We all are, I think, um, for a while. But is that a good thing for the Commonwealth? For well, I, 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 you know, I see the Commonwealth as, you, you know, uh, I, I mean, today, the Commonwealth, the actual uh, original term can be used today for a different manifestation. And really, I mean, so many of these countries, as somebody mentioned earlier, that they have issues with the fact that they feel that, that England has, in the, Britain has in the past taken their wealth, taken their resources and so on, and pulled it for themselves and called it the Commonwealth. Well, today we can actually turn that around to everybody's advantage because there's a lot of negotiating that has already started and needs to go on in terms of not, not just reparations, but making good on some of the things that have happened in the past that have been negative towards, uh, towards some of these countries. And I, I think it could be a good thing to have that dialogue and that body of people together coming together so that it, it can be something that's actually profitable for both sides, for all involved, not just one, not just one person or not just the head of, of, of the Commonwealth. I want to thank all our guests, Joyce Sigurd, Ian Lloyd and Zaid Balbaji.
That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohamed Alaishi, Nihal Adabedi, Sarah Iram Gill, and Paul Taylor. The studio sound was by Alvaro Galan, and the program was edited by Anna Savage, Len Engwin, and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you too for listening. We'll be back again on Monday. <laughs>